Yes, all right, let's see. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I've already warned you that you will get a two-week break from Ecclesiastes starting next Sunday. We get Palm Sunday, Easter, and then we are back to Ecclesiastes, and we will not quite finish it before we take a break for Pentecost, and then we will finish it, okay? So that should tell you Ecclesiastes will run, you know, into, into May, or is it June? I can't remember. Count 12 weeks from two weeks ago, and you'll have it. So this Sunday is going to be fun, but this Sunday is for the birds. Let's stop for a second and see if anybody gets that reference. Ah, Becca got it. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. Um, they sang it, but the crazy communist who wrote it, and I'm not kidding about that part, by the way. He is a uh, crazy communist who wrote it. I don't remember his name. I looked it up, and I don't remember. Um, basically admits that he wrote eight words for the song. The rest of it is copied out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And he actually donates, I want to say, that it was about half of his royalties for writing the song, because, you know, you make money off that every time they play it on the radio. He donates to some charity in Israel. And I always thought that was a nice little thing, and then I started looking up what charity he donates to, and and this is why I call him the crazy communist, because one, he actually is a member of the, or he was a member of the Communist Party of the United States. Um, I think it's one of the charities that ensures that Israel, Israelis won't build any settlements in the West Bank. <laughs> so, nothing like your politics with 1960s folk music. So, that is the section we will be on today. Now, warning, that's the easy part. The rest of the chapter is actually the hard part. There are some things that if you read them quickly, you kind of read them in English and your brain goes, I think I know what I just read. And if you slow down and read it again, you go, no, I don't know what I just read. And then you're confusing yourself. And our goal will be to slow down there and make sense of it as those things go. Now, reminders of the book just simply because we're going to remind you of this every single time, because if you forget this for even a second, you will come up with all manner of understanding of this book, and we do not wish to do that. You are dealing with Solomon writing about the world from the world's perspective predominantly. There are moments when a different perspective kind of pops its head in. We had one last week. We'll have another one towards the end this week. That means when you read Ecclesiastes, you should... You should always read your Bible with your brain, you know, cranked up to 11. But let's be honest, you get into the habit of reading the poetry or you're, some of you genealogy skimmers, I know who you are. <laughs> you start reading and all of a sudden you look up and go, how many paragraphs was that? And you realize you just read three paragraphs or a page and you have no idea what just happened. If you do that in Ecclesiastes and then you try to uh, interpret the book, you will come up with all manner of weirdness. You have to remember and be actively thinking. This is the world's understanding of their own perspective as they see this place. Which again makes it good practice for you because how should you live out there? You should live out there seeing the things of the world and evaluating what? Not just what they're doing, but why they're doing it. You want to attack things at the foundational level, both in the world and in yourself. This is one of the ways, well, actually, this is the way you actually can have victory over sin in your world, is not by just sitting and going, I'm going to change my behavior. Go team, I'm not going to do that anymore. How well does that ever work in human history? <laughs> no, you have to change the foundations behind it. Why do you want that thing? Why do you desire it? What desire should you have instead? In other words, attack the why, not the what. At the end of the day, as we go through this, remember, where is your anchor and hope, Christian? It is in God, and it is found nowhere else. So with all of that said, let's dive into verse 1 and have some fun. 
there is an appointed time for everything. Stop. You know, I, I, I do this to you every week. <clears throat> it's good for you, though. Let's deal with that idea first. There is an appointed time for everything. Who appointed it? Remember, what's our starting point in all of these things? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, do not fall into the trap of the Enlightenment. And some of you are going, I didn't even know there was a trap of the Enlightenment. Well, I don't even know what the Enlightenment is. I understand you're not a weird history nerd like I am. The Enlightenment is the period of history, what, 17th, 18th century. Basically, the United States Constitution comes out of the Enlightenment. Building upon the rejection of the authority that was the Reformation, building upon the rediscovering of ancient wisdom and knowledge that was the Renaissance, the Enlightenment is the humanist project taken to its logic conclusion. Rejecting of God and trying to see humanity from humanity's point of view. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Your modern scientific method comes out of this. That's not a bad thing. However, what we've done with it more often than not is a bad thing, and I'll just leave that there. So the Enlightenment idea is where you get the concept of deism. This is your, uh, your modern-day agnostic. Yes, there might be a God, there might be some power, but if it's there, it's not actually doing anything. It just, it's like cable, you know? You've got the wires all hooked up, you turned it on, but then we lost the remote. And so now things are just on the TV and we don't know what it's on and every once in a while it changes and we can't help ourselves. That's a deistic perspective. You want a theistic perspective informed by your Bible. God has created and he is ruling and reigning. Hence, there is an appointed time for everything. Proverbs 16. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And remember that that directing, that organizing, that sovereign ruling of God does not just apply to you. It does not just apply to the people who are God's people, the ones who are persevering towards the kingdom. Isaiah 40, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows upon them and they wither. The storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their number, their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. God doesn't just rule and reign in your life. He rules and reigns in every life everywhere for all time. It's one of my favorite understandings. He is a sovereign God. That's why I constantly tell you there are no accidents in a universe ruled by God. It's not like we just woke up one day and God blinked and, oh, I don't know what happened. We got to figure this out. There is an appointed time for everything under heaven. You are serving a creator who is a sustainer and an accomplisher in real time. So I will not sing, but let's go through this list. There is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up is lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent 
silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. That's one of the words he actually wrote. See, you got to add it in there. Be honest, you were singing some of it. You were sitting there. Um, See, I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. Now, verse 2, life and sustenance. Verse 3, taking and preserving of life. Verse 4, lamenting and celebrating. Verse 5, coming together, tearing apart. Verse 6, remembering and forgetting. Verse 7, binding, loosing, standing or surrendering. Verse 8, your very emotions. That's the whole hatred thing. (sighs) That's a pretty exhaustive list. In other words, there is a time for everything under heaven. And God is ruling and reigning over all of it. Remember, Solomon wants, this is one of the fun little things about Christianity and about the work of God amongst his people. Solomon is trying ever so hard to look at the world from the world's perspective. At the end of the day, he can't help himself, can he? He wants to see it from their point of view, but what keeps finding its way in? Who God is, how he works, and what the realities of life are. I'm actually in the middle of, um, of reading a book that's trying to explain human decision-making from a secular psychological perspective. I know, I'm weird, it's okay. And the analogy that's used to explain human decision-making is that there's a rider on top of an elephant and that the elephant's really in charge, and the writer makes suggestions, and it's a fascinating hypothesis backed up by years and years of science and all this. But what was fascinating to me was his point was, the elephant is actually emotions, and the writer is our reason, and more often than not, our decisions are based on our emotions. Your core being, the things that make you you, that you don't even think about. And this is the best part. If you want to be a rational, clear-thinking, good person, you know what you have to do, according to this author? Get a better writer? No. You have to change the elephant. I was like, you're this close to a biblical understanding and you don't even know it. What am I forever telling you? You can't change their mind. You can't reason with them. You can't argue with them. You have to do what? You have to change the heart, change the desires, change the motivations, change who they are at their core. And then that leads to a change in the way that they think, which leads in a change in the way that they live. Secular psychologist with PhDs after his name is go. He's this close to figuring out, you know what? I got really bad news. He's not, I don't think he's going to figure it out, but that was just fascinating to me that who you are in the reality of who God is, is just obvious in this world and it can't be ignored. Solomon just has more wisdom than the guy I'm reading, so it interjects itself more, and you can see that here. Now, verse 9. What profit is there to the worker for that, from that in which he toils? Pro- just so you know, if we ever try to do like the book of Psalms in here on a Sunday morning, Ecclesiastes does this. You saw Job does this. The NASB really struggles with poetic language. simply because the NASB tries to translate it as woodenly as possible. And Hebrew, like Greek, doesn't require word order for the sentence. So you understand why Yoda speaks weirdly, right? Understand me, you do. Because you immediately go, no, 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 the subject goes first, and then the verb, and then Yoda does that backwards. Well, Greek and Hebrew can do that, and it's perfectly fine. The NASB tries to preserve that, and that's where you end up with all these lovely prepositions. So, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? That sentence is just so hard to read, but that's because it doesn't do poetry well in wooden English. Now, we won't spend a ton of time here for the simple reason that that was basically the question we covered last week. Go find last week, it'll do you good. Now, the answer is, depends. 
Depends on your perspective. If you are living in this world for the world, what profit is there for all of your toils? The answer is none. Live in this world for the kingdom and for the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom and your sanctification. What profit is there for the toils of this life? Eternal benefit, right? Realize that these ideas go together, that that perspective that you got from chapter 2 is being applied to the rationale of chapter 3. Your love and your hatred are supposed to serve God. Your joy and your sadness are supposed to serve God. Your building up and your tearing down are supposed to serve God. The emotions that you carry through this world, the decisions that you make, the things that you build, the things that you despise are all supposed to serve God. Now stop for a second. Terms and conditions may apply. Your mileage may vary. How you doing? <laughs> the things that you despise, do you despise them because of what you have been taught of the word of God? Or do you despise them for some other reason? The things that you love, do you love them because of the word of God or do you love them for some other reason? This is why I tell you active process in how you live. And when you make a decision and when you come down on a side of an argument, do so unto the glory of God. Not a political party, not a secular ideology, but for the building up of his kingdom. This is always the argument I always laugh because we, we will couch things in all sorts of different language. I always love, I think, I think it's a Spurgeon example. When people attack scripture and when people attack God, it's like children at a circus poking a lion in a cage. How, what is the best way to defend the lion? It's not the most polite way, but what's the absolute best way to defend the lion? He's locked up in the cage at the circus and the children are poking him with sticks through the bars. Open the cage. What's the lion going to do? He's going to defend himself. I don't have to kill myself defending the lion. He's going to do what? He'll take care of it for him. I, I didn't say it was a pleasant example. <laughs> Remind me one of these days to give you guys during like announcement time the, um, the um, oh, there's a test to determine how sociopathic you are. And it's a simple little question. And I know like three people on the planet who got the question right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you go. It, one of them was my mother. The other one is me. <laughs> and the, because it was, to me, it was just perfectly logical. But anyway, I was just like, duh. But there you go. I, I think the person who said open the cage would get the question right. Remind me one of these days to do that. We'll do it in Sunday school. It'll be fun. <laughs> but this is how you are supposed to deal in the world with God and with Scripture. We spend all of our time trying to argue for the history of the transmission of the Bible, and we spend all of our time trying to defend the authorship of this or the rationale of that, when at the end of the day, what are you supposed to do? Preach Christ and Him crucified, and let the Holy Spirit do His job. When we keep the main thing the main thing, we are letting the lion out of the cage. When we try to do anything else, what we've done is, to use the biblical example, is we've taken the sword and we put it back in the sheath, and we've basically decided to have a slap fight. You don't ever want to be in the fight being the guy doing this, right? <laughs> That's a mental image you will all have until the end of time. You are very, very welcome for that. <laughs> You want to be the person who actually looks like they know what they're doing, which means as you enter into the world, 
You bring the proper weapon. You bring the proper argument. You attack at the foundations. You preach Christ and him crucified. That is the thing that changes hearts and minds. You don't debate the other things. Those are up here. You want to get down to the root cause. Now, keep in mind, the world will look at you then and say, you're a nitwit. Why? Because you have brought the sword and you are wielding it. When you do this, you know what they call you? They still call you nitwit. You're a nitwit either way. You might as well actually have the fight that is actually competent. I know you guys can't... (laughs) Sorry. You are welcome, by the way. Now, that's... That's how our decision-making is supposed to go. Where we fall, how we live, what we argue for, what we argue against, unto the glory of God. In other words, again, bringing the right weapon and having the right fight. Let's continue. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. So we're back to Solomon's observations of the world. Keep going, verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So see, this one hurts me because this one tells me that delight was wrong. It is eternity and not groove that is in the heart. Becca got that one. Okay, there's like three of you that got grooves in the heart. <laughs> Sorry, bad. Was it? What song was that? Early '90s? Yeah, early '90s. It's three DJs and a bad dance beat. It's an awful song. Go look at. Go look. Go look it up later and let your eardrums bleed a little bit. It's like it's like a cleansing. It'll get this out of your mind. <laughs> Now, eternity is in your heart. We understand this from other wisdom literature. Job 5. As for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before him. Who does not, who, I'm sorry, he who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. The problem with this is, He's made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart. You have an understanding that human being, you are made to worship. Yet so that men, or say man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. When I say humanity has been made to worship, this is one of those realities of humanity that we like to deny. There is not a human culture that does not have something that it worships, something that it upholds beyond themselves that they are answerable to. Even secular cultures, even as we try to create them, still have to replace God. And and let's be honest, you don't have a secular culture in human history And when I say secular, I mean devoid of higher power or greater things until the 20th century. Do you know what ideology ushered them in? I've already made fun of them once today. Crazy commies. (laughs) Communist ideology tries to remove God and replace God with what? The state. (laughs) When the government forgets God, the government seeks to become God. And even in those societies, the human desire, the human need to worship is either at war against a stated ideology that has replaced God, or it is working to subvert that replacement of God. Humanity worships. It's what we do. It's who we are. We have a set towards eternity, but you will not get 
every question answered that you ask. You will not have every understanding that you want given to you. And this is a hard place to rest, especially now. We live in a world where if you want to know something, what do you do? You And how long does it take you to do it? I mean... Remember, remember the good old days, you know, you know, back before the earth was cooled and we all walked uphill to school, to school both ways in the snow barefoot. Remember those days? Yeah. <laughs> you know, before our bed, that's, that's why all of our backs and knees hurting or we get older. It's that stupid snow that we had to trudge through. That's, that's what did it. I'm convinced. No, I joke, but remember back when you actually had to wait to find out stuff? Or you had to go to a library, or, or if you were, my grandmother bought me one of those encyclopedias that she had shipped to. My, I have this dictionary slash encyclopedia. It is literally this thick. My grandmother had it mailed to her in sections, and she had to put it together. <laughs> and there's like little sections in it. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's actually, it's actually bigger than this. It's, it's dangerous. I've moved it several times, and every time I find the box that it's in, I curse that, box, that box's existence. It's terrible. So you would have to go digging through there, and then why is that book so big? Because they're trying to answer how many questions? All of them. Or didn't you, how, many, how many of you bought the, uh, the encyclopedias from the traveling salesman? <laughs> it, or you have a parent that has that shelf, and they're like the size of the room, if you want to know, go digging through there. I don't even know how to spell this. <laughs> it was good for us. It was actually more in line with humanity. The problem we have now is if you don't know something, you don't even have to type it anymore. You pick up the stupid thing and shake it and talk to it. I'm forever arguing with my Roku at home because it, my Roku wants me to talk to it and I refuse. And then my children come in the room and try to find me having arguments with my television. <laughs> it's like, you can speak this command. No, I refuse to talk to my TV. I have very few things that I just refuse to do. I refuse to talk to my television. That's my line. I'm dying on this hill. I refuse. I turn off all those little talk to your phone things. I, no, I refuse to talk to my phone. I will talk into my phone to another human being. But I refuse to talk to my phone because I know what's going to happen. I'm eventually going to lose the argument. I can't handle that. <laughs> But this is bad for us because it creates what? An expectation that we have a question, we get an answer. We have a wonder, we get an explanation. There's no longer any resting or waiting. Now, you take that person, you put them in a Christian worldview and go, oh, by the way, there's a God in Trinity. He, it, what? That sounds like a made-up word. Well, it sounds like a made-up word because it is a made-up word. It's literally a tri-unity. That's a completely made-up thing. We, we can't explain it to you. There is the Father who is God, the Son who is God, and the Spirit who is God. Have fun making sense of that. I have questions. I understand that. I can't answer them because I can't explain to you God. Well, what's going to happen? I don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. How is it going to work? I don't know. There's a lot of poetic language, and there's a lot of different visualizations. Would giant locusts and battle armor be cool? Yeah, but I doubt that's what it's going to look like. Does that mean I know what it's going to look like? No, it's not. I have so many questions, and I'm told to do what? To rest and know who God is, and that what he has promised will come about, and that what he is building is good, and that's hard. But this has been the lot of God's people from the very beginning. First Peter 1. As to this salvation, this is verse 10. First Peter basically 3 through 9 lays out the gospel. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Think about that for a second. 
You think Isaiah just like laid out Isaiah 53 and was like, I'm good. Like, I'm fine. You know, pierced through for our transgressions, forgotten, forsaken of men. I'm good. God will work that out in his own time. Or do you think Isaiah was like, bring me the Bible so I can figure out what's going on here? I mean, you know, we all suddenly t- would turn into that dude from Dirty Harry, right? I got to know. And what does Isaiah find out? Does Isaiah know when? Does Isaiah know who? He's got a picture. Imagine how frustrating it is to you to read the prophecy and not be able to immediately see the fulfillment in the New Testament. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel don't even have a New Testament. Like, I wrote it, and God told me it's going to happen, and I don't even know what this means. Because that wouldn't drive anybody crazy at all. Not in the least. That wouldn't drive a government official like Daniel who has answers to everything. That wouldn't drive him up a wall. And to no. They're making careful searches, searches and inquiries. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, we have to recognize, Christian, you do not get every answer, and that's a good thing. We've talked about this before. Um, if I could tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt... Um, April 14th, 2032, at 7.45 in the morning, you are going to drop dead. You think that would change how you live every single day until that day? Do you think that would change how you live the month of March and April in 2032? Think that would be a little bit different? Yes, that's why you don't get to know. That's why. You don't need that knowledge. You're not supposed to have that knowledge. Instead, you are supposed to live every day as if you are building your kingdom, as if God would call you home right now. Hopefully, he won't do that to you, but you're supposed to live your life as if I'm I'm liable to drop dead in the next 12 seconds. You're now counting. (laughs) I keep thinking that would be horrifying to do to a congregation, but I'd be okay with it, you know, because one, it wouldn't bother me because I wouldn't care anymore. But I would feel bad for you guys. So I, I think God likes you more than he likes me. So he'll, he won't do that to you. You're welcome. But you have to rest in the knowledge that you do have. Now stop. What is that knowledge? Okay. I know who I am. I know who God is. I know what God has done about who I am. And thanks be to God that he has because I couldn't do anything about that. Which means, again, as we've mentioned earlier, I am declared righteous in his sight. That I am redeemed from the power of sin. And I have been granted a place in his eternal kingdom. And now I have to rest there. Because there are some things that I can't figure out no matter how much I want to. And I have this innate desire to push forward. And that desire must now be channeled into what? into the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom. Figuring out each and every day who I am and how I live unto the glory of God for that end. Because anything else is my idolatry. Or as Ecclesiastes would put it, it is vanity, vanity, and striving after the wind. Something I will not accomplish. From the world's perspective, there is nothing. From God's perspective, however, there is everything. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. All right, a couple of verses in a row here. Solomon's going to lay down some guardrails. So think of it like bumper guards when you go bowling. You know, you pull the little guards out so you don't have to feel like a failure because you can't not throw it in the gutter. That's what's going on here with the guardrails. Romans 8.28 is a good example. So verse 12 here is, There's nothing better for them to do for them than to rejoice in one's good in one's lifetime. 
Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to his purpose. Now, here's our problem. Where do you want that good? Why do we stick that verse on a coffee cup? Some of you are thinking right now, is that, do I have that in my cabinet or not? Yep. <laughs> Remember, we always have those coffee cup verses, what, Romans 8, 28 is one, Philippians 4, 13. Um, oh, Jeremiah 29, 11. That's always one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Psalm 46, what is it, 9, 10? Was it be still and know that I am good? That's, that's another one. At John 3, 16, we always like to, we like the simple verse. We always like to remove the context that drives me up a wall. We, we, <laughs> It does. I'm never going to, I'm never, when I'm Vern's age and I'm a bitter old man, (laughs) yelling at kids to get off my lawn, I will still be complaining about the coffee cup verses, just so you know. We want that good, though, of Romans 8, 28. God, God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Where do we want that good? Now, here and now, because where do we live? Here and now. Where is that good? Always remember the rest of that. Those he loved, he called, and those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. This is the hard part of this verse. Enter into the world and tell them, you know what? Best thing for you is to rejoice and do good in your life. From the world's point of view, tell me what's good. What is best in life? (laughs) And if you answered that question in your head, repent. (laughs) I know Matt did. He grinned as soon as I said that. So it's a great movie line. What is best in life, Conan? (laughs) To see your enemies driven before you and to hear the lamentations of their women. (laughs) In other words, to be victorious in battle and kill all your enemies. That's what's best in life. And if you lived in a barbarian culture, that probably would be what is best in life. But is that what is best, Christian? No. That's just one of the world's answers. And that's why I ask, from the world's point of view, what is best? What is good in your lifetime? Because at the end of the day, you have no objective definition. You have no anchor upon which to hold yourself. You're just kind of la-di-da-di-da, going out and about, figuring this out. That's why it's a guardrail principle for the Christian, not for the world. Keep moving, verse 13. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a gift of God. See, Now we're building. This is the second part of this guardrail. Go back to last week, Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. The anchor that we have to possess is our evaluation of how we are serving God. If it is not unto the glory of God, but it is for the building up of this place, that anchor is held in what? I mean, what's holding it? You just take and be like, I think good is to give money to charity. Okay, what charity? I mean, go back to the guy who wrote the turn, turn, turn song. I give, I take those royalties and I give them to a charity that helps the Jewish people because it is from their scriptures that I took this song. And you immediately say what? Okay, good. Well, it's a charity that gives money to the Palestinians and keeps the Jews locked up in Jerusalem. Um... Uh, yeah, I, I was with you right up until <laughs> that becomes the anchor held where? One of my favorite verses for this. Luke 6, Jesus looks at the people. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts in them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house. Dug, a deep, dug deep, laid a foundation on the rock, and when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. What was that? <laughs> 
But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built on a house, who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. My in-laws actually have had this problem over the years. Their house is built in eastern, northeastern North Carolina, and the, the ground of northeastern North Carolina is of one of two consistencies. It is either rock-hard clay that you cannot dig without a nuclear warhead exploding on top of it. And I know that because I've tried. And you, it's, when I was a kid, my dad was like, let's plant a garden. <laughs> you work a rototiller, and it just goes... And you can literally pick up clumps of the earth. If you don't have that, you have sand. Just, I mean, you, you put the shovel in, pick it up, and just, it's like, ooh... Like the sand of the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. I mean, that's all it is. My in-law's house is built upon that sandy part. And that's really great for digging and doing things quickly. It's really bad for a house built in the 1880s. Because <laughs> you know what happens to that ground over time? Like for years, my, my, at some point along the way, somebody built a kitchen for my in-law's house. And they built it with a crawl space. Not much of a crawl space, about a foot, foot and a half. After about 10 years, you know how much crawl space was left? Nothing. So you had to go in there with a shovel, dig out underneath, put a jack under the beams, and then you jack the kitchen back up. And then a few years later, the crawl space is gone. You got to go back in there, find the jacks that were put in there, and jack the kitchen back up. My father-in-law's been doing that his whole life. And then after the few years, they finally, a few years ago, they replaced every beam in the house. Because it's so much settling all the years of that sandy soil underneath how the whole house was sitting like this. We went over, and I was like, this is weird. This bathroom door shuts. Like, you're... My, my entire time I've known that door, it just sits open. You'd have to slam it shut and then like rip on it. And first time I went in there, I was like, bam, what was that? Wait a minute. Oh, it just, <laughs> you could leave it halfway open and it would just stay there. And it wouldn't, you know, there were things that creaked that don't creak anymore. Things that creak that didn't used to creak. <laughs> you can't build on it. Not long term, not eternally. That's what it looks like to forget God and declare your works good. It's to take your anchor and throw it into a pile of sand and be like, yeah, that'll hold. I don't care how many dads walk up to that anchor, slap it and say, that's not going anywhere. It's going somewhere. It will not hold. If you guys don't know that meme, you're missing out because every man who has ever used a ratchet strap or put in an anchor has done that. He's going, that's solid. And if you don't do that, woe upon your house. (laughs) Because what you have just done is not going to work. You know what I'm talking about. You strap a load down to the truck and you slap it one good time and say, all right, that's solid. That's good. We're done here. <laughs> and then you get a mile down the road and realize we're not solid and we're not good. <laughs> and then you redo it the right way and we're all set to go. But this is, the, this is why I constantly tell you to evaluate, constantly tell you to think, is you have to make sure that that anchor has not been moved. It has been actually laid upon Christ. Who are you? Why are you? Are you glorifying God in this thing? Next guardrail. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That's probably the most important one. To remember who the actual person in charge here is. Because let's be honest, you start forgetting things, and who do you start thinking is in charge? I am! And then you start doing things the way you think they should be done, and I always remind you of the Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, and in the end, that way leads to death. It is something that cannot hold. It is pulling up the anchor. And by the way, not a new understanding from Scripture. John 42. No, not John. Job 42. Job, after complaining for, let's see, Job starts whining, what, about chapter 5? 
And then he argues with his friends till about chapter 38, and then God speaks for about five chapters, and then Job says this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, which is Job's beginning to give you the Reader's Digest version of Job 42, 2 through 6, is Job looking at God and saying, my bad. I'm going to go sit down and be quiet because <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Or to put this understanding in a New Testament perspective, John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, what do you do with all of those things? Verse 15. That which has been already and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. See, you, that makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> See, the NASB has no fun with poetry whatsoever. All right. That which has, all, has been already and that which will be has already been. Really convoluted way of pointing out something that you know by nature, which is that history has this really bad habit of doing what? Repeating itself. God seeks what has passed by. Now, there should be, there should be, as near as I can figure understanding this, there should be a marker here that's probably more in line with because God seeks what has passed by. So in other words, history repeats itself because who makes it repeat? No, we don't. There is an appointed time for everything under heaven. Who appoints it? Who makes history repeat? Now, why? Why does God make the history repeat? What's the purpose of making it repeat? Well, you're supposed to learn the lesson here. We didn't learn the lesson the first time. You've never said that to your kids. You know, if you'd listen to me the first time, <laughs> you've never ever said that one time, right? If you've ever had to teach like children or had to deal with a pack of humanity, at some point you've gone, if you people had listened to me, you're Paul standing on the, uh, on the shipwreck. You're like, if you had listened to me and done what I said, none of this would have happened. <laughs> that's humanity. But that's also God looking at humanity. Now, why don't we listen? Because mules look at us and go, oh my goodness, those people are stubborn. Holy cow. <laughs> Some of you are like, uh-huh. And, and we laugh, but at the end of the day, we don't like this about ourselves, and yet what are we going to do? We're going to keep being stubborn because it's who we are. The problem is us, our nature, and our sin. Now, Christian, where's the cure? in his work, in his overcoming, in his granting a new nature, a new heart that renews the mind. In other words, again, why do I tell you at the beginning, don't go out into the world with the wrong weapon. And don't go out into the world picking the wrong fight. Well, if you want it to be loving, I don't care what you think about loving. You have no definition of love that does not change like the weather in Florida. Therefore, let's go back to scripture. You know they're lying about Florida, right? If you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. And I have actually driven through Florida before where I didn't believe that was true. Cameron and I were driving. We were south of Miami, driving south towards the Keys. And it was beautiful. It was sunny. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. And then not even 45 seconds later, I couldn't see the car in front of me. It was pouring rain. There was a thunderstorm that had come up. And we drove through that for about a mile and a half. And then it was like, where'd the clouds go? I mean, you couldn't even see where they went. And it's like, okay, these people are serious about weird Florida weather. And that was the whole drive. Every once in a while, I'd just be like, oh, we're all going to die. Oh, never mind, we're good again. Okay, here we go. So 
that's how we change our definitions. By the way, that, that secular psychologist I was telling you about that I was reading earlier, he actually is proving that with research. It was fascinating that humanity makes decisions based on how they feel about it, and then the reasons that they give you are more often than not just justifications. <laughs> they're not actual reasons why they made the decision. There's reasons why they made the de- There are reasons why they think you should think the decision was good. <laughs> and that's not something that just hypocritical people do. That's something that all humanity does. In other words, again, you want to get a better person, you need to get better emotions, you need to get a better heart, you need to get a better foundation, you need to get God. That's why I tell you to have that argument there. What changes the hearts and minds of men? The gospel of Christ, the changing work of God. So, let's finish up. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness... There's wickedness. Um, That's not a new lament. Go back to Job 9. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. If the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he then who is it? Now, to be honest, you've never said anything similar to that in this world. I mean, who was the guy who wrote that book? Why do bad things happen to good people? Spoiler alert, there aren't any. That was the first thing. But you've never looked at the world. That just doesn't seem fair. Here's this person doing everything wrong, doing everything immoral, you know, lying, cheating their way through, and what do they seem to get? Everything. And here's this person doing their best, working hard, trying to accomplish, and, and life kicks them in the teeth every five seconds. This is the world that we live in because sin corrupts what? everything. So where's the hope, Christian? Verse 17. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and every deed is there. Ding, 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 ding. You have to rest here. Our hang up becomes we have eternity in mind and we want things now to line up with eternity. They don't. They don't. God sends the rain on both the just and the unjust. Everyone gets the blessings. You enter into a community and you bring the light of the gospel. You seek to do good. Who do you benefit? Do you benefit just the community of Christians? You give to the poor. You do all of these lovely things. Only Christians see that benefit, right? No. You end up helping all, all manner of pagan and debauchery and sex. I mean, be honest. When somebody hits you up for money and they tell you they're homeless, why don't you give them all your money? Because you don't believe them. Because you've been taken advantage of, and everyone you know has been taken advantage of, how many times that you sit there and have 27 debates with yourself at the stoplight before it turns red. Now, and you can do that in Rockford because our stoplights are stupid long. You've never thought that, right? You've been sitting there, does this light actually turn green? Or you get like me one day. I got stuck on State Street in Mulford one day. It was coming south on Mulford, and I just missed the light. And I'm watching the whole light cycle. Everybody on State Street got the green light. And I could, all right, it's my turn's going to be next. And all of a sudden, my light didn't turn green because a fire truck came through the intersection. They had that little switch thing. And when he was done, I had missed my turn and it was State Street's turning. I'm like, no, I'm never getting to work. <laughs> I'm never going to get there. I sat, for, I sat at that stoplight for like 10 minutes. <laughs> it was awful. Or you have a friend of mine who, who stopped at one of those blinking red lights and was waiting for it to turn green. <laughs> You're going to be there a while, too. No, no you don't get that. 
at the end of the day, you have to have your life anchored in an understanding of who God is and that he will bring these things to pass. Go back to Deuteronomy 32. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Matthew 16. What profit... What will, I'm sorry, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We know that part. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. This is again why you don't get every answer, Christian, and why your world does not line up to eternity now. Judgment hasn't been done yet. It's not time. You are still working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You live in a sinful world with sinful people doing sinful things sinfully, okay? And that's going to be the reality until Jesus comes back. So what do you do? You trust that God has redeemed, that he has justified you in his courts, and that you will have a good end. And when that good end comes, that they will either have their sins dealt with because Christ has taken their penalty, or Christ will pour out the judgment upon that sin in eternity. That's where you rest. It's not in the now. You have to have a long-term focus, always. Because the second you lose it, it's like pulling that anchor out of the rock, and going, well, you know, this, this nice sandy beach, that looks like a good place to drop anchor. This will be fine. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Verse 18. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and all return to the dust. Now, Herein lies the world's perspective on everything. Why do they think like that, Christian? Really going to mess with your minds real quick. Why do they think like this? Because it's true. In their perspective, it's true. Genesis 3. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remove a heavenly perspective. Remove a worship of God, rightly enthroned above his creation that he is actively governing and ruling over, and, sub and substitute yourself, or substitute your government, or substitute your family, or substitute your accomplishments in this world for God. At the end of the day, what's the bad, what's the bad cliche? Never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. <laughs> because what have you accomplished? You are dust. This is the problem of the world, and this is the thing that you cannot overcome with any of your hope, with any of your joy, and with any of your peace. It has to be overcome from the inside out. Christian, why do you have hope? Why do you have joy? Why do you have peace? And how can they get it? You can't love them enough. You can't convince them enough. You have to proclaim Christ and him crucified. And that's why it ends here. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upwards and the, and the breath of beast descend downwards to the earth. I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Christian, what's the answer to the question? God. 
Who will bring him to see what will occur after him? Who will raise up your eyes? Who will remove the scales? Who will take out the the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh? Pick your biblical metaphor. Who will change you, change who you are at your core, change what you live for in this world, and change what you want to be. Every society on earth has some understanding of death and its finality. And almost every human being that does not have God has a fear of it. Almost every single one. That's why there's a line. There's no atheists in foxholes, right? Because <laughs> everybody, when the bullets start flying around, is hoping for what? Something more. Now, Christian, is death your enemy? No. Why not? Because it has been defeated. It's been overcome. The judgment has been taken away because of who Christ is and what he has done on behalf of his people. You know this, but recognize what Ecclesiastes tells you about the world around you. They don't know this and they don't recognize this, recognize this and you could explain it until you're blue in the face. You can explain it until the cows come home. What will it accomplish? Because I can't work backwards. I have to attack the heart. I have to bring the right understanding. It's not what's wrong with us is not what we do. It's who we were. And in their case, who they are. Now, the cure for that is who Christ is, which means, again, Christian, what are you living for? Why are you the way that you are? Why do you evaluate things the way that you do? And the second you find the thing that is not surrendered to Christ, (laughs) you found the anchor in the sand. You know what you need to do? Reel that puppy in, go find the proper stone, and lay your anchor down there. That's how we live in this world. That's how you live each and every day, evaluating who you are and what you are and why you are so that you will bring all these thoughts captive unto Christ so that all of your life will be surrendered. So you can do what the Psalm says. Search me, know my heart, see if there is any way, any offensive way in me and lead me in a path that is everlasting. Let's pray.